You are listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by Dr. Ed Stetzer, author, missiologist, and interim teaching pastor at Calvary. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here is today's message. I want you to take a minute and watch with me a video. It's from Switzerland's Got Talent. Maybe you've seen America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent. And it's a... um, Kind of absurd. There's no there's no English spoken in the video, but you'll recognize if you've watched a you know American Idol or something, you'll recognize kind of the format. There are four judges, um, but what I want you to look at is the faces of the judges. Um, who they look like is really going to be important, right? And um, and second, you've seen the X's. They kind of hit the X's when they were kind of buzzing the person out. So. So uh, we're going to kind of jump this in the middle just for the sake of time because I want to get to the text. But what you'll see is, is that the judges um, sense very quickly that this is a painting of the older judge. But not all is as it seems. And so uh, take a moment and watch this with me and then we'll jump into the text. Okay, so you've started to eliminate her because they're looking uh, at the painting from one perspective and they don't appreciate it, Uh, but that's not what she's doing at all. She's actually painting upside down. You saw it by now. She's painting upside down. And if you didn't see it, we'll put a picture on the screen. Because you thought she was painting the older white-haired gentleman, but she was actually painting the other gentleman. And it's only when she flips the painting around do they realize what they've missed. And I love this video for a lot of reasons. One way, it's kind of the same with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling us to live radically different, upside-down lifestyles, but the world doesn't get it. They'll disapprove. They'll reject it because they don't understand it. So the Sermon on the Mount presents some profound teaching, and the world says, no thanks. They hit their buzzer. They move on. Turn the other cheek? No way. I'm hitting back. Store store up your treasures in heaven? No, but I need the latest iPhone. Take the plank out of your own eye? I'd rather point out the speck in my friend's eye. Love my enemies? I want to see my enemies destroyed, canceled, right? These are just a few of Jesus' teachings that we'll be covering the next few weeks and months. So let's jump right in. Uh, to do that, I want to look to our scripture text, right? But I want you to notice that I'm actually going to chapter 5. And you might notice some of you are particularly astute will notice that I am going to read, but I'll tell you why I'm skipping this part, but it's, we actually finished last week at Matthew 4.22. Matthew 4.23 says, and he went throughout all the region of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, presenting the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I've mentioned this in an earlier message because Jesus uses this, excuse me, Matthew uses this to reset his gospel. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them, and great clouds followed him from Galilee and the uh, the, uh, Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So that's kind of a reset in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to, in a few weeks, I'm going to go through and explain those resets, but for now, 
I want us to see that Matthew has reset the storyline, right? He's reset the storyline. He's now begun his ministry. There's the testing, the temptation. He's started preaching, you know, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, he calls his first disciples. Uh, and then the reset. So he's preaching, teaching, and healing. It explains some of those healings. It says the crowds came up to him. But then I want to get to this morning's text, right? This morning's text is what we're going to particularly focus in on. And today we're going to look specifically at the King's Manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. The King's Manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. That's going to be our focus. Let's look at it. Seeing the crowds, we just had the crowds. He was teaching, preaching, and healing. That's the reset that Matthew uses. Then seeing the crowds that came with him, he was healing all different kinds of people. Crowds were there from all Jerusalem, Judea, Syria. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, at this point, I could go through the totality of these, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the first parts. They're actually called the Beatitudes, right? If you have a Bible with red letters like mine, you can actually see these are the words of Jesus. And we're about to enter into a lengthy discourse of the words of Jesus. Now, there's some uh, important literary things going on here as well. I'm going to explain. But uh, we're going to do a brief overview of the entire Sermon on the Mount and then focus specifically on the first two Beatitudes. In doing so, I really intend to demonstrate that Jesus' teaching on God's kingdom shows us the value of being disciples who trust in God's greater plan for the kingdom. So we're going to give a little background here, and the background is maybe more important than we think, but we're going to walk through it because there's a lot going on here. A lot of fascinating things. Why well, I love going through the book of Matthew together. So let's talk about first the setting of the sermon, right? So it says very clearly... Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. I'm not a place to stop. We're going to just say saying, but there's, but there's a reason I'm stopping there. Okay, so Matthew sets the stage for these verses in, um, in these, these verses for the five major discourses that will make up the majority of the gospel. The most of the gospel of Matthew is actually taken up with huge chunks of the teachings of Jesus, right? The first is the Sermon on the Mount. But what you'll notice, and a Red Letter Bible helps you with this, right? What you'll notice is then there's some other things go on. We hear a little bit of words of Jesus. Then we get out another discourse, right? So we get another long discourse. So Matthew sets the stage in these verses for the five major discourses that actually make up the majority of the gospel. So let's take a look at a few things that will help us understand it better. The first is um, what we call the literary composition of the sermon. Matthew excels at this. He groups texts together um, in a certain order that don't necessarily, he doesn't always mean that this chronologically happened, but it's part of the telling of the story of Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew is just known for this. More than any other Gospel, it's kind of got this organization, this structure. One scholar talked about Matthew displays greater design, balance, and proportion uh, and order than any other of the three Gospels. James Edwards says that. So most of Matthew's stories are shorter in length than any of the other synoptic parallels, Matthew and Luke. Um, so in other words, Matthew has less facts than Mark or Luke. Instead, Matthew focuses on connecting the stories together 
within major teaching blocks like the Sermon on the Mount. No, no one else has the length of this. So to read the Sermon on the Mount well, we have to make sure we understand how it all fits together. Keeping in mind, again, so taking a, a bird's eye view, right, of the Gospel of Matthew, just looking down from a big picture, we find five distinct blocks of material, both teaching and narrative, um, that go from Matthew 4.23 all the way to Matthew 25.46. And so everything before that and after that is sort of introduction. So everything we've done thus far from Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 4.16 or so is introduction. And everything after Matthew 26, 46, um, actually particularly from the conclusion is 20, chapter 26 and following, is kind of conclusion. So the Sermon on the Mount is the first part of this first um, discourse. Um, and this is, it's, 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 it's strong place, high level of prominence in the gospel. Um, but we need to be careful. I do call the Sermon on the Mount the most important teaching taught by the most important person who ever taught. Um, but it's it's equally inspired than the others. The Sermon on the Mount does not stand alone, even in the Gospel of Matthew, but it is within a block of teachings that Matthew uh, records. Actually, once you get through, now I'll go through them as we go through this, one, two, three, four, five blocks of teaching, right? Because when we get to the end of that, this is Matthew 26 and uh, verse 1, it literally says this when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So Matthew has five blocks of sayings. In those five blocks of sayings, Matthew puts them together, right? And, and actually, um, you know, some scholars, conservative Bible-leading scholars say that this is sometimes more than one sermon that he patches together, right? Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think that because we see other variants of this in other places, I think Jesus gave the same sermon or variations of the same sermon in more than one place. But we get this idea when, when Matthew says, I'll put it back here on the screen, when Matthew says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, we, we get that Matthew is basically saying that these uh, five blocks of sayings are really one big five, five-fold block, one scholar calls it, of teaching material. This is, this is one saying, focus on the sayings of Jesus. Okay, so the second issue is the audience. Now, Jesus, remember that the gospel, all Gospels are written by someone, Matthew, to someone, in this case Jewish, Jews and Jewish Christians, and about someone, Jesus. But this is clearly focusing on the disciples. Last week I talked about this a little bit, because it's really important that we get that this is geared towards the disciples, who are they to live as citizens of the kingdom. Right, the kingdom of God has broken into the world, um, and now the Gospel of Matthew is like a kingdom citizen's uh, discipleship training manual. So crowds come and go, right? But the focus here is actually the disciples. And it's real important because um, it's a great reminder for us you know, to invest in small groups of people in that disciple-making journey. So, so this kind of walks us through. Third introductory issue on the Sermon on the Mount, you're wondering, when are we get to the Sermon on the Mount? We're going to get to there. Is, but the background is so important because what Matthew's doing really matters. So also, it's the larger purpose of Matthew's gospel. There's kind of a hint here, and you heard Josh talk about it uh, a couple weeks ago, much more in depth. There's kind of a subtle hint 
and a connection between Jesus and Moses. Just as Moses went up a mountain to receive the law, Exodus 20, Jesus ascends a mountain to deliver his teaching. Now, though we don't press it too far, right? The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's clear that Jesus is saying that the law is still of great value to God's people. I don't want to give you to see the sermon as replacing the law, but he's uh, explaining what it looks like to live like kingdom citizens. Okay, one more thing in the introduction. It's what's the purpose of the sermon? And Jesus is giving an answer to the several questions like this, right? What's it like to live as a kingdom citizen? What's it like to live in blessedness, uh, peace, or shalom? And actually today, what a lot of scholars say is uh, flourishing. What's it look like to flourish as a person? So actually, um, more and more commentaries, um, you know, Bible-believing Christian commentaries, are saying things like um, that blessed means flourishing are the... Right, so so what we find is as we go through this, sometimes Jesus is um, general. You cannot serve God and money. Right, we see that sometimes he's specific, and if anyone forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. So Jesus' teaching is, and it really makes up three chapters in Matthew, is about living as a citizen of the kingdom, live obediently, faithfully, and counterculturally. Because, as I said, Jesus' teaching on God's kingdom shows us the value of being disciples who trust in God's greater plan for the kingdom. All right, so we're about to get to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. So um, we're going to look first at the beauty of the Beatitudes, right? So the first section of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. It's actually, it's actually from the Latin, which is strange that we've sort of kept it, but it's sort of sometimes literally translated blessings, so sometimes it'll be translated, blessed are the, but blessed, you know, I don't know, some people today, they put it on their Instagram, you know, and they, they found a parking space and they, they sort of tweet, blessed, well, yeah, I mean, God can bless us with a parking space, don't don't be mad at me if you think that God, that I'm saying that God doesn't bless us with a parking space, he can, but what we're seeing here is, is um, they're a reminder to God's people that he even before he's going to give them a new kingdom way of life, he reminds them of the blessings that they have received. Again, the Beatitudes are a Latin word for blessings, but the term actually, again, doesn't convey the full Greek word that's going on here. So blessing kind of brings to mind active divine favor, right? So God blesses his people, or we hashtag we're blessed to find a parking spot. There's all kinds of places in the Old Testament talk about God's blessing like this. This favor comes, this blessing comes from a covenant between God and man. We see this, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are all blessed by God. They found favor, rewarded for their faith. Um, there's a Hebrew word for being empowered or favored by God, uh, which is Barak. And, um, but there's another Hebrew word uh, that means kind of a description of happiness or privilege or fortune, and you can actually see that Hebrew word at work here in Psalm 1, 1 and 2. It says, uh, blessed is the, is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, uh, who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of... So the, the beauty of the Beatitudes is kind of expressed here in Psalm uh, 1, 1 and 2. Let me read it to you. It says, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight 
is in the law of the Lord, and his law he delights me in uh, day and night. So the word here is actually the Hebrew word that, that, that means, it's esrei. It, it means uh, happy or fortunate. It's a kind of more of a proverb, which so not much a promise, but a generally true statement. In other words, Psalm 1 is saying, not in the sense of lucky, but fortunate is the man who lives rightly, who avoids evil, meditates on God's law. His way of life will cause him to f be happy and to flourish. So when the Old Testament was translated to Greek, the, the, uh, the Hebrew word, uh, asrei, was always translated into a term that meant fortunate, happy, but never the term that means divine favor. So, um, so that's where it gets tricky, because we just hear blessed, we think of divine favor. So some have even translated this as a life others are envious of. And, you know, envy is not generally a good thing, so it's maybe a little challenging. But again, modern scholarship has been rightly arguing the best use of the term is flourishing. So Jesus is saying those who live an upside-down life, a life like the painting we saw in the video, will flourish because they're living kingdom values. Like the flower that's watered will bloom, so those who live according to the Beatitudes will flourish. Happiness is not found stepping over others as you climb the corporate ladder. It's not found in the accumulation of wealth or possessions. It's not found how many Twitter or Instagram followers you have. It's not found in excelling above others to their, to their detriment. Instead, people, human men, humans, men and women flourish when we, like God himself, right, give ourselves to others and are vulnerable in kindness and love. So as we make our way through the Beatitudes, don't see them as divine blessings, right? God's not making a statement of covenant here with those who mourn. If you mourn, there's a divine covenant that this will happen. If you meek or meek, there's a divine covenant this will happen. There's no divine promise to bless them. Uh, Jesus always starts with the heart and the Beatitudes do just that. So if you're meek, you'll flourish. You'd like someone to be envied because of the kingdom values that are at work there. So there are actually eight uh, Beatitudes listed. Interestingly, seven have to do with character feature. And the last, being persecuted represents those who have the features, right? So a sevenfold blessing uh, marks actually an ideal blessing, right? So we actually see that in the scripture. So you've got a sevenfold blessing, upside down nature of the kingdom, however, expresses this ideal in actually facing persecution, hardly the way the world would express it. Okay, so we're now just let's get, get into them, right? Remember, Jesus' teaching on God's kingdom shows us the value of being disciples who trust in God's greater plan for his kingdom. Now, if you're a first-time guest, I get that my introduction may be a little overwhelming. So stay with me, um, because we're going to now walk through the Beatitudes over the next several weeks, and I think you're going to be blessed um, by them as we walk through them. You're going to be blessed, right? You're going to be blessed. It's going to encourage you. You're going to uh, have spiritual flourishing because of that. I believe that because the Bible says that. So let's go and move forward here. So um, number three in our outline which is really the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting is, is elsewhere the poor are spoken of being blessed, right? So why poor in spirit is, does it mean to have a deficient spiritual life? Is Jesus saying those who are spiritually dead are, are fortunate? No, no, of course not. Um, it's um, A lot of scholars interpret this phrase, poor in spirit as kind of spiritually bankrupt and and I think it's not a bad way to see it right to acknowledge our own spiritual bankruptcy 
our inability to become righteous on our own. And so how does that relate to the poor? You know, here it says poor in spirit, but no place says poor. And I think that, um, that we can point to and see that the rich and poor have different concerns, right? The rich worry about trends in the stock market today. The poor worry where their next meal is coming from. Uh, the rich and poor worry about different things. The rich worry about how to best increase their wealth. The poor worry about whether they can pay their electric bill each month. There isn't um, it's a slam on the rich or even a praise of the poor, in my case here. I'm just pointing out some of the differences between them. So in a similar way, those who are spiritually poor have a desperate need to God for in, to God to intervene for them. They have no one else to assist them. They've reached the bottom, and in this case, realize that Christ is enough for them. The poor in spirit are not arrogant. They have no spiritual self-confidence. They come before God knowing he's their only hope, which is such a great message for us at a church with over a century of history that we can walk through proudly and miss that what God really looks for is people who acknowledge they are poor in spirit, who acknowledge their own spiritual back, back bankruptcy. They come before God knowing he is their only hope. We see this in the Old Testament, right? This is the kind of call message, right? It says this in the Psalms, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So if the psalmist had his own resources, he wouldn't have to depend on the Lord for his needs, but he is poor. The Lord takes thought of me because he has no other concerns, no other resources. He's concerned just for what's next. God is his deliverer. This is a picture of what it means to be poor in spirit, to be wholly dependent on God for all parts of your life. Or recall a story from the New Testament, the parable Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. We don't have time to go through it all. But two men were praying at the temple. The Pharisee thanked God that he was, quote, not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector, the person literally near him. I fast twice a week. I give the tithes of all I get. So the tax collector prays an entirely different prayer. He did not lift his eyes to heaven. He stood far away. He beat his chest praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, only one man left justified that day. It wasn't the religious Pharisee. It was the tax collector, the great sinner who humbled himself before God. Jesus says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So in the same way, the poor in spirit depend upon God. Have mercy on me. The poor in spirit gladly submit to God's rule. That's why theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because they, they can't earn it on their own. They, 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 they have the kingdom, not one day, but already, because it says, for theirs is, that will be, is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching in verse 3 that Blessed, flourishing are those with no spiritual resources, for God will deeply and richly supply them. And maybe you get that, maybe you feel that, I get that, I feel that. And in doing so, the spiritual destitute are God's kingdom citizens because Jesus' teaching on God's kingdom shows us the value of being disciples who trust in God's greater plan 
for his kingdom. These are upside down values, my friends. Right? This is not what we think of in New York City, are they? Right? So who wants to play in first place, in the first position in the orchestra? Who wants to achieve the promotion at work? Uh, who wants to kind of keep up with the rat race? Now, Calvary, we don't have everyone who's excelling, and we have people who are struggling financially and more, but we have seen what it looks like, those who rely on themselves, and we see what it looks like, those who rely on others. And the Lord, spiritually here, Again, I don't want to unpack everything about the poor here because he says poor in spirit here. So I want to stick with what the text says. But here and throughout is a picture of us relying deeply on the Lord. Okay, let's go on to number four, which is the divine comfort of those who mourn. Boy, I bet some of us can feel that today. New York, we were hit so hard early on in the pandemic. and But just the everyday mix and challenges of life. So here... Right, we find the divine comfort of those who mourn. So, what's going on with this with this verse here? Okay, well, let's let's remember uh, what we're talking about here. Jesus wants to say, wants to, goes on to say, that those who mourn are blessed, fortunate, to be envied, flourish, which seems strange, but it complements the first beatitude. This one notes the obvious reason to our spiritual bankruptcy is to mourn. And I don't want you to take it the wrong way, right? Is is Jesus actually saying you're living your best life now if you're mourning? No. Is he saying God wants you to be sad all the time? No. I think here Jesus is saying that it's not the kind of mourning we typically think of when we hear the word mourn. Our minds are drawn to personal grief or sadness. We mourn when a loved one dies. The Lord is there to give us grace and peace. We mourn when a bad thing happens in our circle of influence. The Lord comforts us. But Jesus is actually looking far past the day-to-day sadness that comes from cancer or mass murder. There's a clear indication here. So, right, we're reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, right? So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But in this passage, it's actually quoted directly by Jesus in Luke's gospel. It actually says the Messiah will, well, let's take a look, right? The Messiah will. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who are in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may all be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I I believe that the best understanding of this passage is that the setting that Jesus has in mind here is that God's people are mourning over the state of their nation. Israel's been judged here in Isaiah for faithfulness and disobedience. She's been invaded, conquered, and destroyed. Her people have been taken captive, and they mourn the judgment they have been, well, they have received. Jesus then, in linking this beatitude with Isaiah 61, is saying that happy, blessed, flourishing, and to be envied are those who can look across the landscape of life and mourn over its broken brokenness, right? And this, um, you know, it, inclu- it includes mourning through some of the challenges, some of the grief over personal sin, the things that that has caused us, the loss that that has created. So unbelievers can be broken uh, over the events in um, in the Middle East, right? Uh, unbelievers can be broken uh, over the events in uh, coronavirus. Uh, or they can mourn the death and destruction that comes from 
um, from earthquakes or natural disasters or more, right? So we can all do that, but we've not done well developing our concept of lament, even though it's a common theme of Scripture. It's a book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? So many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, and anyone can mourn, but sometimes for us, our first response is not to do something, to post something online. Um, you know, it's to take time to lament. You know, when George Floyd was killed, I lamented. When I hear of a mass shooting, I lament. When I, I, I hear of people losing their life in the Middle East, I can lament. But Jesus, I think, calls us to mourn over how our world functions at the macro and micro level. Do we mourn when we hear the news that a couple is ending their marriage and divorce? Do we mourn? Uh, or when you learn the language of depression is beginning to be articulated by a colleague when they're going through, or the utter loneliness from someone who's been isolated in the midst of COVID, or someone who's lost a loved one. Jesus says that those who mourn and cry out to God over their situation are the envied, not because they are mourning, but because they will be comforted. So the passive voice is used here, right? And several times, actually, in the Beatitudes, I'll unpack them as we go through. Um, Emphasizing the fact that God himself is the one who comforts. The comfort will come from God himself because he knows the cause of their mourning. Their, he knows that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, one famous philosopher would explain. So God's plan and cause for his creation is not as he wants it. And those who mourn over such affairs, they get it. They're blessed. They're fortunate. They're to be envied. They see what's going on. So, Jesus' teaching on God's kingdom shows us the value of being disciples who trust in God's greater plan for his kingdom. So, think back with me again to the video we watched at the beginning. I know it might have seemed odd, but remember the faces of the judges and the audience? They were confused. They didn't buy it. Like, kind of an ugly picture to them. Ugly picture of that, that, that gray-haired guy. The judges were unimpressed until ultimately the artist flipped it over. And showed this was a whole different picture. Listen, if you're new to Calvary Baptist Church, or this is your first time coming to church in a long time, and you're confused about what I've said today, can I ask you a favor? Before you decide that Christianity isn't for you, or that being poor in spirit and mourning all the time isn't the life you've always dreamed of living, would you not give up too soon? Come back next week. Um, come back the next several weeks as we continue our look at the Beatitudes. Let's see if Jesus' picture of an upside-down world is actually surprisingly beautiful, a different way of live where people are to be envied because they live that way. What if, just, just what if, in, this, in this, this, this upside down world for his followers doesn't turn out actually to be a right side up portrait of a life lived in fellowship with God who created you and this world, and that's a life to be envi envied. Because being poor in spirit and mourning over a sin-filled world isn't the characteristics of a weak or simplistic life, but they are markers of God's people. And we've highlighted throughout the message today, Jesus' teaching on God's kingdom shows us the value of being disciples who trust in God's greater plan for his kingdom. We're going to walk through and experience the joy of that as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these countercultural words about an upside-down kingdom. Lord, I pray you'd help us to see you with kingdom eyes, upside down eyes from the world's perspective. So we might hear things like blessed are the poor in spirit and say that's me. I I can't do it without Christ. I, I, I need him. Maybe that's your prayer right now. I need you Lord. 
and those who mourn, those who may be in a mourning situation, need to hear the grace of God in this, Lord. And I pray you'd be with those who mourn, giving them grace and comfort. But, Lord, we also look at a sin-sick world, the brokenness all around us, and we mourn sin. We mourn our own engagement with it and the cost that it's brought in our communities. And, Father, I pray that you help us to see a bigger picture so we might indeed be blessed because we're flourishing by understanding what life in the kingdom looks like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to Tell It From Calvary.